Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to open your word, to read what you have recorded through men that you carried along by your spirit. Thank you that your word is true. We pray that you'd help us to understand what you say and what we need to learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, raise your hand if you like basketball. All right, that's not terrible. Raise your hand if you know anything about the NBA. Keep them up there. I want to, all right. So I, I can. I can feel okay about my opening comments. Back in the 80s, the Boston Celtics had a big three. Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish. And the Los Angeles Lakers had at least a big three with Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and James Worthy. And they went back and forth, kind of swapping taking turns winning championships uh, through those years. And then, you know, time goes on and another team will arise with like Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and they had, you know, B.J. Armstrong and Steve Kerr and you know, different people that kind of supplemented them. Craig Hodges, <laughs> some of you remember some of these people. And then as you get into the, the 2000s, the, the, the 21st century, the Boston Celtics kind of had the first new big three with Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, and uh, Ray Allen. And then it was followed by the, the Miami Heat with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. And now they've, they've taken it even further. They've gone from you know having three superstars on the team, now, now you have to have four superstars on the team. And so we have the likes of the Golden State Warriors today with Stephon Curry and Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, and the last guy's name, uh, the guy's last name is Green, Draymond Green. Uh, four superstars in order to win a championship, and it becomes you know, more and more complicated. The church is not nearly that complex. The church, you ready? The church has no superstars. The church has no stars. There are people that flock toward certain personalities, the personality is not the star. They might act like a star, people might hold them up like a star, they're not the star. The church is not based upon stars or superstars, the church is constructed on the foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and prophets. And those doctrines comprising God's word are all in alignment with the chief cornerstone. Do you know who the chief cornerstone is? Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. To use another New Testament analogy, uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Everyone else, everyone else consists of the body. Someone might be, you know, a more prominent piece of the body, just the body. It's just the body. Jesus Christ is the, the head of the church. As we begin our study of the book of Philippians, 
we will notice the importance of gospel partnership. We'll notice that the way that Paul speaks, and he is inspired by the Spirit of God, this is not just Paul's word, this is God's word through Paul. As Paul communicates, he makes it very clear that there is not an upper echelon of the church and then the peons. It's the church. All focused in upon our one Savior and head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of Philippi was formed on one of the missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts. Shortly after the separation between Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas began going on a missionary journey, and they took along with them Timothy. As we notice what's happening here in Acts chapter 16, they're, they're seeking God's direction as to where to go to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God shuts the door on a number of directions. And then he opens the door, beginning in verse 9, through a vision to Paul in the night. In Acts chapter 16, look please at verses 9 and 10. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God is ministering in their lives to give them direction. Verse 12 now. And from there we went to Philippi, which is a leading city, a leading city, in the district of Macedonia, in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. God had big plans for this visit. Paul and Silas didn't know where they were going to go, and God directed their steps, and God had big plans, different plans than, than maybe they would have anticipated. The first element of that big plan was their encounter on the Sabbath day, beginning in verse 13, Acts 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what we said, or excuse me, what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so we have this first encounter as Paul and Silas and Timothy enter into Philippi, communicating the gospel. God opens the eyes of Lydia, opens the heart of Lydia, and she believes. And so also did her household. This is a work of God. This is a direct result of God leading them and God having a plan in the city of Philippi. Then the next scene here is that God used Paul to set a demon-possessed girl free from possession. You see that in verses 16 to 18. We don't need to read the context. It's, it's there. You can read it later. So this slave girl is, is speaking, and Paul frees her from possession by Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus is the power behind it, the Lord Jesus sets her free via the instrument of Paul. 
Then, in verses 19 to 24, Paul and Silas were seized, dragged before magistrates, and jailed. Well, now this has taken a strange turn. This is not the plan. Not in our minds. Now we can read the rest and so we know it's the plan. But like that actually happened to Paul. And that actually happened to Silas. They were in real time. They're not reading back on it. So here they are, led by God to Macedonia, to the city of Philippi, and it opens up. Everything's great. Lydia comes to Christ. Her family comes to Christ. They're baptized. We're celebrating. Then there's this demon-possessed girl who's spouting off, trying to confuse people with her message. Paul casts a demon out of her, and then the people are upset because by that young lady, there was a lot of profit. The people were angry. Now, Paul, Silas, they're in jail. This is not, it, this can't be the plan. Now they're hampered. They must have been bummed. <laughs> You've read this, haven't you? So after they were beaten, they were put in jail. They were placed in an in inner cell in this jail, and they were held fast by chains. They were in the stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So this is, this is where we're at. Their response to an interruption of what they thought would have been a good plan was to sing praises, even though their plans had been foiled and they were in pain and they were probably in a not very nice place, and yet they sang praises to God. This tells us a bit about understanding our Father, that he, he does what's right even when it doesn't feel like it's right. We can learn from the testimony of these men that we don't have to weep and wail and gnash our teeth when things don't go our way, but we can instead trust that God has a purpose. Now what's interesting is, as we read the rest of this, what is also interesting as we read the rest of this, is that this is just a little blip. It's a little blip on the radar screen. Look what happens next. Verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his, all his family. And so now we have this great 
the, the beginning was Lydia and her family, and now we've got the Philippian jailer and his family. Um, in, in, in between, there were some very inconvenient things taking place, bad things, um, painful things, things that we should not overlook, um, but challenges to the human will. And then it gets even more interesting. The next day, you know, you think, all right, they threw them in jail for a reason, right? And now they're not in the jail. Someone's going to be pretty angry. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, let those men go. All right, what happened yesterday? Well, put them in jail. Hold them in stocks. Beat them. Today, let them go. What's going on, folks? That's not how it works. There's a reason you put someone in jail. There's a reason you beat them. You don't like what's going on, but really, God was getting to the heart of that prison and the heart of that prison guard and that prison guard's family. And God was bringing about for himself a church. It goes, it's even more interesting. Verse 36. And the jailer reported uh, these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. In other words, hey, um, you know, everything that happened yesterday, just forget about it. Uh, no. Verse 37. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out? Secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid. Now, this doesn't make sense to us. But so we start to have a little bit of a window into some of the background of Philippi, the city. We'll pause here. We're going to keep reading in just a second here. But Philippi was a Roman colony established, you're not going to, you'll never guess who established it, Philippi. A guy named, you guessed it, Philip. Philip II, he named it after himself. He's got no pride issues. Philip II is the father of Alexander the Great. Remember Alexander the Great? It's supposedly said that at one point someone caught him crying. And, 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 and the reason he was crying is he was crying because there were no more worlds to conquer. Well, his daddy was Philip. Philip uh, had taken control of uh, a small region in Macedonia and, and, and expanded it by means of giving his armies uh, great equipment and by using gold to bribe people. And so Philip uh, makes this little region a, a bigger region, and, and now we have his own place, Philippi, Philippi, apparently, was, as one of these Roman colonies, a place where retired war veterans would go to retire. It was a place that people had a great uh, respect for. In fact, uh, they had all the rights and privileges of being a Roman city. And in some places, you see that they didn't even pay taxes for it. So like, it's, a, it's a really a beneficial place. You can have a lot of pride if you're from Philippi. And God breaks into this great city of the day. 
breaks into this prideful city of the day, sending Paul and Silas to meet first Lydia, then this demon-possessed slave girl, then the uh, Philippian jailer. They're, they're flogged publicly, imprisoned, and then released. Verse 38 now. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Why is it such a big deal? Because you're not supposed to treat Roman citizens this way. Verse 39. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen uh, the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so it's like we, we have to look at this, and we can't avoid in chapter 6 seeing God's sovereign purposes. This is not how we plan things. And this is the, a very simple background to how the church at Philippi formed. It, it, was, it was a prominent city, small but prominent, and a place that had um, a lot of pride, and God starts to break down that pride with the gospel. The gospel has a tendency of smashing our pride. The gospel must smash our pride. Any pride in ourselves, spiritual pride, is the antithesis. It's the absolute opposite of what the gospel does. Because the gospel is all about what Christ has done on our behalf, not what we have done on Christ's behalf. So that's the background. Head back over to the book of Philippians. As you look through it, you know, if you read summaries and the like, they'll tell you that it's all about joy, and that's, there's some truth to that. If you read other commentaries, you'll see emphasis upon oneness or one-mindedness, and that is also, there's some, some great truth to that. If, in my understanding of the book of Philippians, as, as I have been poring over it, I see those two things colliding, the, the oneness of mind and the joy, underneath something else that, that, that I think we have to understand that we'll see a little this morning, a little in the notes that you have, and then certainly as we go through the book together, that God has called the church into a gospel partnership. God has called the church into a gospel partnership. That partnership must be one-minded. We must be side-by-side, shoulder-to-shoulder, striving for the faith of the gospel. That's Philippians 1.27. The results of a gospel partnership that is a one-minded gospel partnership is an overflowing joy. An overflowing joy. However, there are obstacles to this kind of gospel partnership. And Paul gives us a number of obstacles, things that would undermine gospel partnership. And if, if gospel partnership is undermined, then also what is undermined? Joy is also undermined. Many times the contentions that we have are because we think that this way, this way is better. And this way will result in my ultimate joy. And God says, 
if you do things in opposition to what I've communicated to you, you're missing out on the joy that I can give to you. And so we will notice throughout uh, some obstacles, and then we'll, we'll notice some pathways toward joy. Uh, just briefly, some obstacles to gospel partnership. Again, this is in your notes. I, I cannot spend time delving into much of this this morning for sake of time. You're being nice to me after not being mad at me for taking too long. And because we want to properly celebrate the Lord's table together. A first obstacle to gospel partnership is wrong motives. In chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul said, Some indeed Christ, uh, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So wrong motives are, are obstacles to gospel partnership. As you get into chapter 2, self-seeking is an obstacle to gospel partnership. Um, just by implication, he's talking about striving together. He's talking about, in verse 2 of chapter 2, to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in, of one mind. And then he talks about doing nothing from selfish ambition, etc. So he's making it very clear that selfish ambition is an obstacle to striving together, and the striving together that we must have is a striving in the gospel. What is the gospel? What Christ has done on our behalf. The gospel is about my sin placed upon Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law. He willingly took my sin upon him. He paid the debt of my sin, the guilt of my sin. He received the condemnation against my sin. He fully paid it. He was buried and he, he was raised triumphant over it. And my faith, faith in Christ results in God giving me what I don't deserve, which is Christ's righteousness. Self-seeking is an obstacle to that kind of gospel ministry. Also is complaining. Chapter 2 and verse 14, take a look. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. In the, the positive, in that section, the whole thing is about displaying the light of the gospel. And, and complaining and mumbling is the opposite of gospel light. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he talks about religious pride. We'll just look at verses 2 and 3. This Philippians chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about opponents, those that would come against the gospel ministry. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision. We're the true Christians. We're, we're the, the community of God. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. And what's the rest of it say? And put no confidence in the flesh. And so he's letting us know that confidence in the flesh is an obstacle to gospel partnership. As you look at the end of chapter 3, he tells us that fleshly appetites, fleshly appetites are an obstacle to gospel partnership. He says in verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies, enemies of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is short term for what? Or different term for gospel. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, in what way? Verse 19. Well, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so fleshly appetites are obstacles to gospel partnership. 
so also is disunity. You see that in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to uh, agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have, past tense, labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's letting us know. Listen, at one point they were laboring side by side and now they're in enmity. Enmity undermines gospel partnership. Don't allow enmity to undermine gospel partnership. Don't allow personality differences, philosophies, to cause you to go sideways away from a one-minded partnership in the gospel. And then he talks about anxiety in verses 6 and 7 as being an obstacle to the gospel partnership. That's just a little survey of the, the obstacles. From the positive standpoint, what he's letting us know, and we're just going to take just a couple of minutes to look at the first one. Go all the way to the beginning of, of the book of Philippians, because this really is our text. And we're going to spend just a couple of minutes in our text for this morning. It's such an easy passage to see the emphasis in light of what Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is communicating. He says in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He opens this letter by, by declaring their own servitude. In other words, don't follow me. Don't, don't look at me as though I am the champion. I am simply a servant under Christ. Where I follow Christ, follow me. If I don't follow Christ, don't follow me. I am simply a servant of Christ. Also, uh, Silas and Timothy are servants of Christ. And, and what is that word? It's the word doulos. It has the idea of a bond slave. It's, a, it's not a popular role in society. I am just a servant of Christ. And so he does not place himself on a pedestal. Additionally, he says, I'm writing to, here, here's how we would do it. I'm talking secularly. I'm writing to the overseers and deacons who also have the peons with them. But that's not how God writes this. I'm writing to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, and by the way, among you, saints, there are those who have the role of overseer and deacon. There's nothing about a hierarchy here. Now, it teaches us about some of the functionality in the church, right? Some of the ecclesiology, the way that a church functions, a church polity. It teaches us a bit about that, but that is not the emphasis. The emphasis is this letter is to every believer in Philippi, those who are in Christ Jesus, and among you, as a subcategory of you are the overseers and the deacons. The word deacon means, uh, is, is the word for minister, those who serve. And so I have this simple 
topical outline there. Number one is gospel partnership has no superstars. Please get that. Listen, I have all the respect in the world for people like, I'll use my favorite to, to start, Alistair Begg and then John MacArthur and people like Matt Chandler and, and others that are gospel proponents that are faithful to the text. I've, I've, I'm, I'm a, I would not call myself a fan, but I have, I have respect for them because they point to the scriptures. These men are not my heroes. They're not my heroes. There's, there's really, when you come down to it, there's one hero. It's Jesus. His father. They're, they're, they're one, okay? So I can just say one hero, right? The Spirit of God, one. Okay? They're, they're, they're all of one essence, okay? So when I say one hero, I'm talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But the one that is the visible entity amongst the triune God is the Lord Jesus Christ. He came in tabernacled among us. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is our hero. To hold up anyone else as our hero is kind of a mistake. Gospel partnership, church ministry that should be focused in on the gospel and the presentation of the gospel, the preservation of the gospel, the, the refreshing um, communication of the gospel is not about a guy behind the pulpit. It's not about me. It's not about Pastor Bill. It's not about any of the other elders. It's not about your Sunday school teacher. It's not about them. It's about the one to whom we point. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no superstars here, folks. There are churches that are oriented that way. Um, very rarely do they last. Very rarely do churches that focus in on the personality of their leader. Very rarely do those things stand the test of time. What we need, what needs to be our day in and day out focus is not a person behind the pulpit or a particular leader but the one to whom that person behind the pulpit, that leader is supposed to be pointing. There's one superstar. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul starts that way. He starts that way to a church that is very well aware of pride. Pride, because they're, they're a Roman colony of highest status. And yet, his pointing is not to himself and not to the leaders of the church, but to the Savior of the body, Jesus Christ. So the gospel partnership has no superstars. As we go through our study together, we'll notice that gospel partnership is based upon the work of God. We'll see that in verses 3 through 8, that gospel partnership requires fruit. It requires fruit. We don't say, hey, we stand for the gospel and nothing happens. Well, if nothing happens, then you're not preaching the gospel because the gospel is impactful. Look at verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of, of Christ, filled, filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so gospel partnership requires fruit Love and righteousness uh, that these texts uh, point out, they come through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. That is the results of gospel ministry. 
And so if we don't see love and righteousness being produced, it's because the gospel is not being emphasized. It's not because we're not telling people, hey, you better be loving and you better be righteous. That's not how it works. Try that out. You'll, you'll be loving and, and righteous for about three seconds, and then you'll go back to your own fleshly ways, and, and it's not gonna, nothing will have changed. Preach the gospel and people love. Preach the gospel and Jesus' righteousness is not only known but seen. That's what the gospel does. Fourthly, gospel partnership requires the preaching of Christ. We'll see that in verses 12 through 18. And then, as you look at the end of chapter 1, gospel partnership requires mutual concern. There's concern from the people of Philippi for Paul in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to, to you soon so that I may be cheered, may be cheered by news of you. And so the Philippians... Oh, wrong chapter. No wonder it didn't seem right. Sorry about that. Verse 19 of chapter 1. I read the wrong chapter. Chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so there's concern on the behalf of the Philippians for Paul. And then this, this blows, blows your mind, okay? This, what happens in verses 20 through 26 is akin. I always want to use that word. It's like... What Paul says in Romans 10, it's not quite to that level. When Paul says in Romans chapter 10, I'll be willing to be accursed for the sake of, my, of Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, that just makes you think, I don't think I can say that. I don't think I can say, send me to eternal separation from God in the lake of fire forever so that someone else can get saved. I don't know if I can say that. that. That blows my mind. This one is maybe a tier below that. Listen to what he says in these verses, starting in verse 22, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Stop right there. One is better, one is worse. One is to be with Christ, one is to work. Which I shall choose. Sounds like an easy decision to me, doesn't it to you? That's because maybe the mind of Christ isn't is embedded in us when we're thinking that way, as it needs to be. Verse 23, for I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for what? For your progress and your joy in the faith. I'm here for your joy in the faith, is what he just said. That's, that is pretty impressive. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he says it'd be better for me personally to go and be with the Lord. But it's more important to continue faithful ministry over my own personal eternal joy. Your joy is more important than my joy. That's what Paul said. Just sit there and be honest, will you? That's not how we think. When you get in the way of my joy, I'm speaking proverbially here, I'm going to run you over. I don't, that's not how I should be, and I don't mean that actually will. I'm just speaking tongue-in-cheek. When people get in the way of our joy, 
they have become an obstacle. And Paul says, my objective is your joy, not mine. That's how he begins chapter 2. He talks about if there's any consolation in Christ, etc., etc. And he says in verses 3 and 4, do nothing, do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit for your own joy. But in humility, count others, others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you. And he goes on and talks about that great passage about Christ humbling himself, even to the point of death, the death of the cross. This, this is gospel partnership. Considering other people over ourselves. Gospel partnership. Well, so we could go on with the outline. I left it there for you so you can kind of look over it as time allows you. Let me just point out number 11 on the list. You get your little outline, 11. Gospel partnership requires a pursuit of Christ-likeness. You're familiar with that text. I really challenge you to read that through, but I want you to read it through with a little encouragement, okay? He talks about, I haven't attained that for which I've been attained, but I press hard after I forget those things that are behind. I reach forward to those things that are before. I press toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Gospel partnership requires that pursuit of Christ-likeness, okay? Here's, here's the encouragement. Chapter 1 and verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will continue to complete it. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a, a certainty. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 12 talks about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you. God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Chapter 3 ends in the same note. So you get chapter 1 in encouraging us about God bringing this to pass. You've got chapter 2 encouraging us about God bringing this to pass. And you've got chapter 3 where, where this pursuit of Christ like this is, is emphasized. And you have him bringing this to, to completion again. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, heaven, we await a, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, not might transform, but will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. What's the source of this? By the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You know what he just told us? Christ-likeness is going to happen for every believer. It is not in doubt. John says it differently. When John talks about us as beloved children, right in chapter 3 of 1 John, he says, when we see him, will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Folks, I want to encourage you. you maybe, maybe you look in the mirror, whether it be the literal mirror or a figurative mirror, and you see yourself, and I see myself, and I see my flaws. I see my sin. I see my weaknesses. I see my, my tendency toward my way rather than what Scripture says, which is God's way. I see it. It's, it's, it can be very <coughs> discouraging, and it should be. But it should only bring me to discouragement to the point where I repent, I confess my sin, and I remember that he is faithful 
is just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That sweet fellowship results in repentance from our sin. And that God is not done. Where you are today is not where you have to be tomorrow. And where you are tomorrow is not where you need to be next week. The Lord is at work in us, making us like his son. And there is a certainty to the finality of that. That one day the struggle against our wickedness and our sin will be over. And we will be just like Jesus. Never will I move towards sin and away from God ever again. It seems like it must be so far away. Folks, how many people have come and gone in your lifetime? You will come and go. Our day will come when we all breathe our last breath and we will be with Jesus forever. That day is coming if he doesn't come and get us first. The reality is, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you will be perfectly Christ-like forever. In the meantime, by God's grace, we must pursue, press toward Christ-likeness. This book, Philippians, will press upon us. It will press upon us not to live for ourselves, not to have our own little world that we navigate in and include church but to recognize that the life of the Christian is inextricably linked to the place, the church that God has called us, so that we as a church will proclaim with one mind and one voice the one gospel of Jesus Christ, the one superstar of all the church. There's no main superstar. There's Christ and Christ alone. This book will press us not to seek our own glory, but his and what will happen, folks, if we will allow God to press us into proper, one-minded gospel ministry, you will see that your life will abound with joy. That's what this book tells us. That is our goal in the coming months. As God graces us with the privilege of studying, let us press. Let us press with one another, side by side, to strive for the faith of the gospel, and let God produce within us an overflowing joy that no other thing could ever describe or ever produce but God alone. That's what the gospel does. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, and thank you for your spirit, and thank you for this privilege of spending time together. Enable us now as we consider your table, the table you have set, for us. Enable us to observe this in a manner that is worthy, in a manner that displays the gospel. Minister in each one. I pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, that even today they would realize that there is, there is hope for them, that they 
just need to trust Christ and Christ alone, and he will save them from their sin and give them righteousness, and they too can have this pursuit of Christ-likeness in this life and know that it's certain, certainly will come to pass by God's grace. They can have life eternal through Christ alone. Minister in us and through us now, in Jesus' name, amen.